Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We will begin with today's critical congressional election in New York's 3rd District of Queens and Long Island that could weaken the GOP's slim hold on the House and be seen as a referendum on Biden or Trump, depending who wins the seat to replace the disgraced Republican George Santos. Joining us on election day that was hit by a late winter storm is Lawrence Levy, the executive dean of the National Center for Suburban Studies at Hofstra University and a former opinion writer for Newsday, where he was a Pulitzer Prize finalist for editorials on suburban politics and policy. We'll discuss his article at CNN, George Santos was a disaster. Here's what the race to succeed him looks like. Then, with voting underway in Indonesia today, where it is February the 14th, in an election that could see a former general with blood on his hands, who represents the nation's corrupt oligarchy, win the presidency, we will speak with Thomas Papinski, a professor of government and director of the Southeast Asian Program at Cornell University and a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. His work studies comparative politics and political economy with a focus on emerging market economies in Southeast Asia. Then finally, we'll examine further the likelihood of General Prabowo, who was banned from the U.S. for decades, becoming Indonesia's next leader, and discuss the history of genocide at the hands of the military, as well as the role of the U.S. in aiding and abetting the slaughter of two million Indonesians in 1965-66. to Joining us is Joshua Oppenheimer, an award-winning filmmaker based in Copenhagen, best known for his Oscar-nominated films The Act of Killing and The Look of Silence, which profile perpetrators of the 1965 Indonesian genocide as they reenact their war crimes without remorse. His upcoming apocalyptic musical film The End will premiere later this year. And before we begin, I would like to thank our listener donors who keep Background Briefing independent, corporate and commercial free without paywalls or constant fundraising by making tax-deductible donations to our non-profit foundation, the Public Truth Media Foundation, at publictruthmedia.org or at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate. As we enter this fact-free and violence-prone election year, with much of the country under the cult-like spell of a deranged demagogue spewing constant lies while inciting hatred and violence, help us continue to seek out facts and information to awaken America's silent majority before our democracy is trumped by fascism. And joining us now is Lawrence Levy, who's an executive dean of the National Center for Suburban Studies at Hofstra University and a former opinion writer for Newsday, where he was a Pulitzer Prize finalist for editorials on suburban politics and policy. And he has an article at CNN, George Santos was a disaster. Here's what the race to succeed him looks like. Welcome to Background Briefing, Larry Levy. Thank you for having me. So what do you make of uh, this wild card that's been thrown into this incredibly critical race in Queens and and Long Island? And it's the weather. I mean, (laughs) an uh, ill-timed snowstorm. uh, Who's it going to hurt in terms of turnout? Well, I mean, think about it. I mean, after millions of dollars being spent, and I mean, thousands of people knocking on doors and giving out the so-called campaign literature and all the complicated issues in this race, 
that it's going to come down to the weather gods to decide. Um, but, you know, uh, th- there's a couple of schools of thought on that, if, if, if it's okay for me to continue. Um, sure. The, uh, you know, w- one school is that the party, the candidate that has the lead in early voting has the advantage because, well, their votes are in the can already. The other school of thought is, well, no, the, um, the party that has the stronger, you know, get out the vote organization and the hottest uh, issue has the advantage. And in this case, in the last few years, at least uh, it's been the Republicans with the uh, stronger uh, organization. And this year uh, with the hottest issue, which, of course, is is immigration. So 80,000 people have already cast ballots as of Sunday when the period ended. And apparently there are 11,000 more registered Democrats have cast ballots. So they've got 11,000 lead, according to that. Obviously, it's critical to the Republicans because they can't afford to lose another seat uh, since their majority is so narrow. And in fact, George Santos is trolling the uh, House Republicans by saying, you know, don't you miss me? Right. <laughs> so, and of course, the Republicans are voting today for a second time to impeach Mayorkas, the head of the DHS, simply because right. they know tomorrow they may not have the votes. So right. a lot's riding on this. Is I mean, this is a big well, deal. Yeah, I mean, it, it, a lot, you, you know, obviously you made the case uh, for why a lot's riding on it for the uh, Republicans, but you could also make the case that even more is riding on it for the Democrats. Um, you know, they're the ones who uh, are facing headwinds on more issues this time around, I think, than, than, than uh, the Republicans. Uh, immigration is a tough one. And uh, the Democratic candidate here, Tom Suozzi, has been pounded on that. Uh, he did get a gift from Donald Trump uh, when the former president urged everybody to scuttle the bipartisan deal and allowed Swazi to kind of go on a counteroffensive to say, see, you know, you vote for my opponent, Mozzie Phillip, and uh, you're going to get another MAGA Republican. Uh, she won't even compromise, you know, et cetera. And, you know, for, for suburban swing voters, moderate voters, uh, you know, they tend to shy away from extremism of any stripe. And Swazi's counting on their aversion to a lack of willingness to compromise and support for President Trump, you know, as something they may want to shy away from. So, you know, the, the Repub- Democrats have immigration uh, as a, a, a tough issue right now. The Israel-Hamas wars, as you, you probably discussed on, on other uh, uh, shows, uh, it is really tricky for Democrats now. You know, you have some young progressives are not happy uh, uh, with uh, uh, the president and in, in our area, in, in Long Island, with Tom Swazi's full-throated support for Israel. Um, by the same token, you have um, uh, some Jewish voters, and uh, this district has among the most Jewish voters of any in the country. Uh, you know, some Jewish voters, you know, they're a little concerned about, you know, the progressives and the so-called squad uh, supporting Palestinians. And, um, you know, Swazi's had to kind of figure out a way or, around it to try to bring everyone together. Um, and uh, uh, related to that, you know, there's 17,000 Muslim voters in uh, the third district. And you have a rising number of Muslims in suburban swing areas around the country. Again, this is not a big problem for 
Republicans because Muslims have not been voting for Republicans in the in the recent certainly in the recent past. Uh, so it hurts the Democrats if they decide to you know even just stay home. They express their displeasure. So you know this would be um, uh, you know if if Tom Swazi loses, it, it tells Democrats that around the country that you have not solved these problems as you move towards you know the the big enchilada or burrito or whatever on November fifth. So Swazi, of course, is uh, Italian American, but he's running yep. on a very pro-Israel uh, campaign for obvious reasons that you just described, Larry. But his opponent, Mazi Pillip, she's a, a Falasha, right? She's an Ethiopian yep. Jew who served in the Israeli Defense Forces before emigrating to the United States. So she's got pretty good credentials in terms of the Jewish vote, doesn't she? Well, she, she has um, two levels of credentials there, which kind of reflects the complexity of this issue. She has the support of the Orthodox community, of which she is a member, and which has been growing in this district. Uh, Orthodox Jews, uh, unlike you know the more reforming and, and conservative sect, uh, uh, are a reliable part of the Republican base, not just here, but around the country. And, um, and, and they vote... Republican, like white evangelicals, religious voters, religious conservative voters, you know, for president on down a dog catcher. So she can always could count on them. What she's hoping for is that her affinity with it will get her a higher turnout. By the same token, she does have that intriguing biography that you just described that, um, uh, you know, she is from Israel. She's the Falasha, as you mentioned. And the Republicans are hoping that some of those Jewish voters who tend to vote Democratic if they come out in a, in a special election might say, you know what, let, let, let's try, let's try the, you know, let's let's try something different. Let's try a fellow Jew. Uh, and, and the Republican calculation is the same uh, in terms of her gender, that um, maybe, you know, uh, uh, the, the suburban women uh, in particular who have been a real problem for Republicans in the suburbs around the country will say, all right, you know, she's a woman, let's give her a chance. Um, and by the way, I didn't mean to go on and on, but there's a micro sliver of an issue related to her race. There are very few black voters in this district, but there is an historic black community called Newcastle. And I'm watching to see if Democratic performance in that district is lower than usual. And again, maybe some black voters said, you know what? The chance to elect not just a black person, but somebody from, you know, the, the homeland, from, from Africa herself, is too, too tough to pass on. Well, how is she doing, though, as an immigrant running on the issue of immigration, essentially saying, as the Republicans are, that Biden is soft on immigration, even though Biden, he did endorse this bill that Trump sure. got the Republicans to tank in the Senate which actually irritated a lot of and alienated a lot of progressive Democrats because it was so harsh. So you, you were saying earlier that Swazi's been hammering away at that to point out the hypocrisy of the Republican position on immigration. Right. Well, Marty Phillips' position on immigration has been, hey, I'm an immigrant. I know the experience. I know how hard it can be, but I came legally... And we need to do something about the people 
who are not coming here legally and make it easier for those who are willing to go through the, the required steps. Uh, you know, she's trying to have it both ways, which, you know, is not all that different from a lot of uh, political people on it. Um, at the same time, she's running ads, uh, uh, you know, dozens a day showing um, my, migrants uh, stomping on a New York City cop. Um, to, and, and one of the Republican strategies and tactics with their advertising, their messaging, is to tie the migrant issue to the uh, fear of crime that drove the last couple of election cycles. And so far, they seem to have done a pretty good job of making that connection. And, um, you know, for, for, for Democrats all over the country, it's an example, along with the economy, of the challenge of closing the gaps between perception and reality. And uh, this is a very prosperous district. It's got some of the wealthiest zip codes in the country, but it also has, you know, a, a, a poor minority area. It has a lot of blue collar middle class people. And uh, but but you could make the case that its relative wealth means that the economy, you know, should be less of an issue. Inflation, at least, should be less of an issue. But again, there's there's a, just a perception that is really tough to get um, people to 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 drop, um, you know, in the face of really good economic numbers. And the same thing on crime. The, the pandemic fueled fear of crime and chaos. Um, you know, in a in a township where there's very little crime, yet people see the New York City news uh, uh, broadcasts and in the papers, and uh, some of them commute into the city, uh, and um, it, it has been very powerful for the Republicans. And again, how does Swazi? How did Swazi? How does he deal with it? It could give a clue to how people will deal with this in in other districts around the country, certainly around New York. Right, but you mentioned, uh, Larry, that it's a pretty affluent district overall, the third district, which comprises parts of Queens and Long Island. And Trump, of course, comes from Queens. I don't know whether the Democrats are running against Trump, uh, which is their main focus in their national campaign and, and running well, yeah. in terms of Trump as, an, as a menace and a danger to democracy itself. But you'd think a lot of these uh, voters would have a pretty good 401k, wouldn't they? Well, yeah, and, and that's why um, I, I don't think you're hearing, I, I, I think that's the reason that you're not hearing, uh, you know, in, in the advertising and speeches, a lot about the economy. People are not afraid of the economy right now, even if they don't think it's as good as, it, as the numbers suggest it is. What they are afraid of, uh, or, 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 or even just concerned about, are the the economic and, you know, the, the personal uh, and financial consequences of, of the, the migrant crisis. And maybe 2,000 miles away, uh, uh, the border, but, you know, there are thousands of migrants on the streets of New York. Um, you know, the, the beating up of a police officer, talk about outliers, but, you know, it just takes one person being pushed off a subway platform, you know, out of 10 million uses of the subway, to get people to stay home and not use it. It's just the power of the media, particularly social media, to spread fear and misinformation is a challenge for any candidate who is on the defensive. And Swazi has been on the defensive 
for a lot of the campaign, but of late has been able to, as I mentioned earlier, mount a bit of a counteroffensive, for example, on, on migration. So given the weather, given that there's this huge storm, late winter storm, and, and apparently from the, the reports that I've been looking at, very low turnout, understandably so. So who are the most hardy voters then? <laughs> the Democrats well, or the Republicans to brave the weather? Well, again, as, you know, as I mentioned, you know, there, there are two schools of thought here. You know, the Democrats have more votes in the can, but even that is not necessarily as great a sign as you might think for the Democrats, because a couple of things are, are, are in play here. One, you know, there are Orthodox Jews who are still registered as Democrats and haven't voted that way in a long time, like, like some Southern whites who have been Democrats for generations but haven't pulled the lever for one, you know, in 20 years. Uh, the other thing is that um, Democrats, uh, uh, even persuadable swing voters, have been leaning Republican in the area. So just because you have an, a, a lead in enrollment doesn't necessarily mean you have a lead in votes. The, the third thing is that, you know, there are a lot of so-called blanks, people not registered in both parties. And those blanks have lately, again, been leaning pretty heavily Republican. So it's possible that the Democrats have no lead in votes even if the registration suggests that they might. Um, and when it comes down to pulling votes out, the Nassau Republican machine is maybe the best in the country at it. And that's not local yokel hyperbole. Uh, I mean, it's been that way for a long time. Uh, and that a political party with a 100,000 vote deficit in enrollment can, can win going away in every competitive county, town, election says something about their ability to get out their supporters and message to the relatively few people who are persuadable. So that suggests that the Republicans should have an advantage in a snowstorm. The only caveat to that is the Democratic Party may have finally learned its lesson about getting out its supporters. And the um, endorsements, and Swazi has a huge advantage in institutional endorsements, have come with manpower and money. I mean, you had 500 carpenters on the street in one village the other day, a blue-collar village, trying to make the case uh, for, for the Democrat. And, you know, so it may be that the apparatus is a little more even. Right. But just in the last minute, though, Larry, yeah. given that how critical this vote will be, at least the punditry will, if the Republicans win, it, it'll be a blow against Biden... Uh, who's already sort of, you know, <laughs> up against the ropes right. here in many ways. And well, conversely, yeah. if, the, if the Democrats win, then everybody will be saying, well, see, it's a referendum on Trump. So at the end of the day, are they reminding, are the Democrats reminding the voters that this is all about George Santos, who was a complete embarrassment, and he it was a Republican? It only recently, though, his name has been, been uh, surfaced in the context of the campaign. The, the Democrats tried to hang him around the necks of local candidates last November. You know, pictures of them with their arms around each other, you know, at a, at a campaign event. And it just didn't work. And uh, 
Swazi, as part of this counteroffensive, has resurrected that. Like, why would you want to elect another MAGA guy like George Santos, who we don't know a lot about? It's also part of the counteroffensive. And so Santos's name has been has surfaced a little more often. And, you know, in, in, a, in a close election, you know, I mean, you've been you've been dealing with politics a long time. Anything can be decisive. And it's disappointing that I don't think anybody is doing exit polling. If I had the money in my budget at the National Center for Suburban Studies, I would do it. But it's very expensive. And in a snowstorm, it would have been maybe a fool's errand. Who knows? Um, by the way, the snow has stopped. I can tell you. I'll give you the weather report. The snow has stopped. Uh, the, the, the temperature is above freezing. So, so it's beginning to melt a little bit. Um, my wife's out on the street doing some errands. Uh, so I think anybody who really wants to vote... Uh, can vote. Well, Lawrence Levy, I thank you so much for joining us to, here today. I appreciate it. Anytime. Thanks for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Lawrence Levy, who is the Executive Dean of the National Center for Suburban Studies at Hofstra University and a former opinion writer for Newsday, where he was a Pulitzer Prize finalist for editorials on suburban politics and policy. And he has an elegant at CNN. George Santos was a disaster. Here's what the race to succeed him looks like. We're going to take a restation break and back looking into the voting underway in Indonesia today where it's February the 14th in an election that could see a former general with blood on his hands who represents the nation's corrupt oligarchy win the presidency. Wintertime in New York town, the wind blowing the snow around. Walk around with nowhere to go, somebody can freeze right to the bone. I froze right to the bone. New York Times said it was the coldest winter in 17 years. I didn't feel so cold then. I swung on to my old guitar. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Thomas Popinski, who is a professor of government and director of the Southeast Asia Program at Cornell University and a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. His work studies comparative politics and political economy with a focus on emerging market economies in Southeast Asia. Welcome to Background Briefing, Thomas Popinski. Thanks very much. I'm glad to be here. Well, thanks for joining us in a very important election that's taking place in Indonesia on February the 14th, which it's already February the 14th in Indonesia today. So we won't have any results for a while. But uh, General Prabowo, a longtime U.S. protege that's been implicated in, in some of the country's massacres, particularly in Timor, the incumbent president, President uh, Joko Widodo, I guess he's, is he termed out? Is that why he's not running again? Yes, he's finished two five-year terms, and under the Constitution, that's the maximum that he can run. But his son is Prabowo's running mate. So even though he, uh, Joko is pretending to be neutral, the fact that he's put his son on the ticket with Prabowo seems to be tipping the scales, right? That's right. And I, I don't even think it's accurate to say that he's pretending to be neutral. It's very clear that... Uh, Jokowi is interested in the Probo ticket and has thrown his support behind him. So a scholar at Northwestern, Jeffrey Winters, is, writes about plutocracy and oligarchy. And he describes Indonesia as, as an oligarchy or is run by oligarchs. And the journalist Alan Nan 
writing in The Intercept, said he met recently with one of the big oligarchs in in Indonesia, Tommy Winata, and he asked him who he thought would win the election. And Winata says, me, and he says, get on to say, if A candidate wins, I profit. If B candidate wins, I profit. If C candidate wins, I profit. So is that a way to describe Indonesia as an, an oligarchy or a plutocracy run by plutocrats? Certainly, uh, it's certainly accurate. It's certainly um, a commonly used framework. Um, uh, Jeffrey Winter's analysis uh, of Indonesian politics is actually quite comparable to his analysis of U.S. politics and other consolidated democracies. He defines oligarchy as the politics of wealth defense by materially endowed actors. What, what that means is when wealthy people use politics to protect their interests, then you have an oligarchy. So that describes Indonesia perfectly, but it also describes lots of other countries as well. But there's also a comparison, is there not, with Pakistan and Indonesia, in the sense that one of the old jokes about Pakistan is it's not a country with an army, but an army with a country. Does that also apply to Indonesia? Uh, I, that's, I think, an exaggeration. I think that that quite severely underestimates the vibrancy of Indonesian so, civil society and the role of po popular opinion in shaping politics within Indonesia. But it's undeniable that the military has played an absolutely central role in Indonesia's political development since, and in fact, even before independence from the Dutch in 1945. Um, the difference right now is that in the democratic context, the military interests, those that are aligned either with the military right now or those who, like Prabowo, have history of affiliation with the military, they are struggling, and I think they found a way in this election to, to work with public opinion rather than against it. So it seems that Prabowo will win. I mean, it, it, he has to get more than 50% to avoid another election. But what's your guess? On, I mean, they're pulling out all the stops. Um, yeah, I think, handing I think out there's... food to poor people, etc. I mean, they're doing all the tricks that, uh, that these kind of elections happen in, in third world countries. Yeah. Although, I don't like the term third world. It implies mm. that there's some sort of ranking of worlds. I think Indonesia is yeah. interesting, consolidated, but challenged democracy, just like the country that I live in. But more, more importantly, um, yeah, I think Prabowo has a good chance of winning. I think he has a strong interest in winning in the first round. Um, he suspects, and I think he could be right, that there is as many there are as many voters who just oppose him as they are who uh, support him. And his hope is that if he wins 50% plus one of the vote in the first round, then he won't have to face a unified anti-Prabo opposition in the second round. My worry, this isn't based on any empirical evidence or anything that I've seen myself, but I think it's consistent with my interpretation, is that Prabo has put himself in a position to put his thumb on the scale if the numbers are close. I don't think that he has to... Uh, to uh, resort to fraud or anything like that to get a, a large majority of the votes cast on February 14th, I do think that he may not reach the 50% threshold that he seeks to achieve right now. And you can hear when you watch his campaign rallies, the 50% in one round uh, uh, figure is really important to him. He's really focused on that um, because that would mean that he, that the election is over. So I think the the, the the most important question right now is not whether Prabowo is the most popular among the three uh, presidential tickets. He clearly is. 
It's whether or not he is popular enough to win the election in a single round. And I think that the, the jury is going to have to be out on this one. So do you think his campaign using this cartoon character, this cuddly Gimor character is working? I mean, it's sort of somewhat interesting. Oh, sure. I think it absolutely. The thing that, that I think your, your listeners should understand about Indonesia is that it is a very young country. Uh, and Prabowo's crimes are old. So if you are a voter who's younger than about 40, you would simply not remember, because you may not have been alive for some of the actions that Prabowo was responsible for. I'm thinking in particular, uh, his role in the Indonesian occupation of Timor-Leste from 74 to, to 99. And then subsequently, at the end of Su the Suharto era, as his regime was collapsing, the work that Prabowo did to try to protect the authoritarian regime on the on the on the, and I believe his goal, and I don't think I'm alone in, in saying this, his goal was to find himself uh installed as the as Suharto successor. He failed in that. Um, he was held accountable. He was dishonorably discharged from the military. The United States revoked his passport. He could not travel to the United States for about for nearly 20 years after that. So he did face real sanction, but the younger voters in Indonesia simply do not remember that. So the strategy of adding Jokowi's son, who's largely unqualified to be the president, to the ticket is both an attempt to ally himself to Jokowi, who is himself also very popular, but also an attempt to reach out, and I think that's been effective, to younger voters who do not remember or maybe perhaps aren't, aren't so bothered by what happened 20 and 30 years ago. But surely every voter, including young voters in Indonesia, know that Prabowo is married to Suharto's daughter. No, uh, they're not married. They were divorced years ago. They were well, he was married. But I'm saying he presumably benefited from that connection because Suharto, uh, it's estimated that he basically stole something like $30 billion from the Indonesian people. This is what I think you... It, it may not. It may surprise you, but I'm not sure every Indonesian voter knows this. I think that Indonesian civil society is working very hard to make sure that Indonesian voters know this. But I, no, I don't think this is something that that you can assume that every Indonesian voter knows. That he is former dictator Suharto's ex-son-in-law is a detail that matters to people who have the memory of the Suharto era. But those who don't this may not really register with them. It's also important to remember that Prabowo is not, he is not powerful just because he used to be a member of the first family of the former dictatorship. He is also a son of one of the most well-respected Indonesian economists and the brother of an Indonesian billionaire. So even without the Suharto connection, he would be powerful and his name recognition would be pretty wide. So it's it's really a tricky situation. It's hard to reduce this to us to sit to something like simply the legacy of the Suharto regime. There's more complex forces at play here. Um, and what I find interesting is, and I, I find it unbelievable as somebody who's paid attention to Indonesian politics as long as I have, is that the young Indonesia's youth population is just not either as aware or as bothered by, by what may, might seem to some of them as ancient history, but what seems to me as um, worrying signs of the type of leader that Prabowo would be. But if indeed he doesn't get the 50%, that would indicate that the alternative constituency, how much of the alternative constituency that 
does remember the past, that is educated about what happened, and, and many of them, I assume, uh, have relatives who were murdered in the 1965 slaughter, which many described as genocide, which was conducted by the military. Yeah, um, the 65-66 politicide, the death of somewhere between one and two million Indonesians and the total eradication of the Communist Party of Indonesia um, is uh, is a tragic moment in Indonesian politics. It is it is not directly tied to what we're describing here right now. Prabowo was a child when that happened also. Um, and I don't think, for better or for worse, that Indonesians associate the military first and foremost with that. They also associate the military first and foremost as a uh, political institution that throughout successive generations has stood for, right or wrong, a form of political stability and Indonesian independence. And so these, are, these legacies are sadly mixed. Um, and even today, you know, 60 years or almost since the killings of 65, 66, uh, uh, discussing those things in public is difficult. And many people whose relatives were affected live with a kind of latent shame, not that they've done anything wrong, but they could be that, that, that they could be suspect of being related to others who are alleged to have done something wrong. But Going back to the Pakistan analogy with the military influence, if not control, the military in Indonesia doesn't do what militaries normally do, which is protect the country from foreign invaders or foreign enemies. It seems to be turning its guns on its own people, and certainly not just uh, this massacre, which in 65, 66, or this genocide, which they weren't overtly involved in, but covertly they clearly were. They also were involved in massacres in Timor. And to this day, uh, they're killing people in West Irian, in Irian Jaya, who are Melanesian. They're not Indonesian, but I guess because it was a former Dutch colony, Indonesia claimed that back during the Johnson administration, didn't they not? And why did the U.S. decide to allow Indonesia to gobble up half of New Guinea because it was a former Dutch colony, which clearly impacts the security of another ally, Australia. Mm. Uh, So um, to understand the Indonesian military, I think it's important to remember its origins um, in the anti-colonial struggle, in the first emerging under the Japanese and then later against the, uh, the Dutch after the Second World War was over. From the very beginning, the Indonesian military has had a doctrine that holds that it is not only responsible for external security, but also for internal security. The idea uh, is that Indonesia is at Indonesia's risks are not just not as much from things that are uh, foreign influences that would like go over a border the way that a standard border protecting military were the way that you just described it, but also that there are perhaps latent or perhaps overt internal threats uh, that are themselves perhaps plants, insurrectionist types of things that are uh, doing the bidding of foreign outsiders as well. So from the very beginning, you have to understand the Indonesian military as seeing itself as legitimately holding a socio sociopolitical role. Um, and to, and to you're, you're correct that it doesn't operate like a Western military, but I don't think that's ever articulated a doctrine that's supposed to be operating like a Western military. For example, for most of the Suharto regime, the military and the police were under the same command. Um, that has that has ended since 1999, 
but it gives you a sense of how this uh, of how this works. So I, I I think that it's as an, a Western observer, you may look at the military using force against Indonesians and look at that as must be self evidently evidence that the military is operating against the national interest. But in the Indonesian sort of uh, uh, political imaginary, that's a legitimate function of, of the military. It creates a very difficult problem um, when it comes to things like dissent and disagreement. Um, and one of the most worrying things about the most recent Jokowi administration has been his willingness to partner with the military in order to, uh, uh, in order to support his political and economic interests. Uh, what, but this is unfortunately uh, not new, and it's also unfortunately not something that can be easily unwound. The risk, of course, is that the same force that can be used to police the population for foreign enemies could also be turned against domestic enemies. And I think that's what that's the risk that we see right now. But just in closing, though, what is is the U.S. role here? And when I mentioned LBJ back in the post-colonial era, era when when Indonesia got its independence and the U.S. I think weighed in in terms of of them also claiming Irian Jaya, West Irian, which is again, you know, ethnically it's Melanesian, and that has always had security implications for Australia. And there's a sort of low-level insurgency, but with the OPM, the Papuan. Nationalists who the Indonesian military are brutally putting down. Was it because of the military? What they talk about, the Navy talks about slocks, sea lanes of communications. What what's the thinking there? Because the continuum of U.S. influence is, is pretty. You know, the CIA is supposed to be have its fingerprints over the, the massacre, the genocide, and also, of course, Suharto met with President Ford and Henry Kissinger back in '75, just before the Indonesian military moved into Timor? Uh, so uh, if the question is, what is the role of the United States in perpetuating the occupation of West Papua? Um, I think the role today of of the United States in doing that is relatively minor. This is an Indonesian affair. Right. Indonesians are, um, are, they are not, you know, puppets of the West. They have their own national interests. And uh, dating to Sukarno, the vision, the articulated vision is that Indonesia is all the parts of Southeast Asia that were colonized by the Dutch. Uh-huh. So in that that argument uh, held, rightly or wrongly, that West Papua was therefore definitionally part of Indonesia because of the colonial legacy that it shared. The United States played a very important role in not opposing Indonesia's uh, invasion and occupation of, uh, of, uh, of West Papua. Not only that, the United States, Australia, and other countries were were they were unwilling to um, uh, to criticize the so-called act of free choice, uh, a sort of cooked election by which Indonesian uh, West Papuan leaders were uh, were held to have are to have themselves chosen to join Indonesia. Uh, America, Australia, and other allies in the region didn't uh, didn't do anything to, to to withstand this. And there's a lot of foreign interest in West Papua's rich natural resources. Um, the world's largest gold mine, for example, is the Grassberg mine. West Papua. Um, there's a lot of interest in stability in West Papua. I uh, I wish that I had an optimistic story to share to share with you about the future, but I think um, 
it's very unlikely that Indonesia could ever be convinced to let West Papua go, let West Papua go. And the way that Indonesian officials describe it to me is they're going to make it Indonesian if it's not already uh, Indonesian. And just in closing there, in general, what what is the calculus on the part of the US in terms of having a treaty with Australia and a, not a treaty with Indonesia, but certainly pretty close ties with the Indonesian military and government? Yeah, the Indonesian military or the Indonesian foreign policy is is fairly non-aligned. The Indonesians do not consider themselves to have treaty allies, and so they will never have the sort of relationship with the United States that a country like the Philippines or Thailand has. Um, moreover, Indonesian foreign policy is not as impressed by the United States as Americans might like to think. Um, my understanding of of the current current foreign policy thinking in Indonesia is that they believe that the United States is a declining power. And that they, their most relevant regional neighbor is China. Um, so I think that the from the perspective of U.S. foreign policy, there there needs to be a bit of modesty about what the United States is able to do. Uh, and for better or for worse, I think the United States will find itself able to partner with any Indonesian president on issues of mutual concern. Well, it's a little ironic, isn't it, when you consider that the genocide in 65, 66 was started by slaughtering the Chinese. So, yeah, this, there's about, a, there's a, talk, there's levels of complexity there that are that are fascinating and painful to uh, to peel back. Well, Thomas Papinski, I thank you very much. I I learned a lot from this conversation. I appreciate it. Thanks very much. I'm glad to be here. And again, I've been speaking with Thomas Papinski, who is a professor of government and director of the Southeast Asia Program at Cornell University and a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. His work studies comparative politics and political economy with a focus on emerging market economies in Southeast Asia. We're going to take a brief station break and back examining further the likelihood of General Prabowo, who was banned from the U.S. for decades, becoming Indonesia's next leader and discuss the history of genocide at the hand at the hands of Indonesia's military. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. Joining us now from Germany is Joshua Oppenheimer, an award-winning filmmaker based in Copenhagen, best known for his Oscar-nominated films, The Act of Killing and The Look of Silence, which profile perpetrators of the 1965 Indonesian genocide as they reenact their war crimes without remorse. His upcoming apocalyptic musical film, The End, will premiere later this year. Welcome to Background Briefing, Joshua Oppenheimer. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. And clearly in this election, the ghost of the genocide from 1965 to 1966 in Indonesia, in which up to 2 million Indonesians were slaughtered uh, by, well, the invisible hand of the military, who have their candidate now running for president, and I guess other political and right-wing forces. How much is there still an historical memory? I know you did a lot to revive that historical memory with your two films, Joshua, but my understanding is that Indonesia is a very young country 
and the campaign that General Praboa is running uh, is, you know, cuddly, touchy-feely cartoon characters with no historical memory on the part of young people that are voting and might vote for him. So let's, if we could, focus on what you think is left of the historical memory in Indonesia, and particularly in the, in the extent to which it has been passed on to a younger generation. Well, I think you're speaking in part about repression, and I think systematic repression and suppression by the military of what happened enabled a political system based on rampant impunity for not just political violence and mass killing, but also for ongoing corruption. And you have a political system that's deeply corrupt, and that is itself the legacy of the 1965-66 genocide. At the same time, there's a younger generation that has come up in the last, let's say, 10, 15 years, which is deeply interested in trying to understand how the country became what it is today, why democracy remains so fragile and such an ineffective form for expressing popular will and translating that into real policy that could change society for the better. And I think there people have looked to history when they've had access to, to, that, to, to that history to try and make sense of things. And so I think there's a profound legacy of fear from 1965. And at the same time, there's an understanding that it is because of that mass killing, because of the genocide, that Indonesia is the corrupt regime of fear that in many ways it still is. And of course, corruption also breeds cynicism and apathy. You know, when you're part of a political system where when you live in a society where your voice doesn't matter really because ultimately whatever preference you express at the voting booth is neutralized by corruption, you start political participation no longer directly leads to, to policy change. And so I think the corruption is essential to understand, is, is, is sort of the essential legacy of the genocide that that undermines dem democracy as a system in Indonesia. And your two films, The Act of Killing and The Look of Silence, which profile the perpetrators of the 1965-66 Indonesian genocide, uh, has most grueling scenes of the perpetrators reenacting their crimes without remorse. But in terms of foreign manipulation, if that's the right word, how much do you think this was a kind of intelligence operation by the US and, and others. And because remember, I mean, again, we're talking about movies, uh, The Year of Living Dangerously, of course, by Peter Weir makes that implication. Obviously, there are similarities in, in many ways to what happened in Iran when the mullahs took over. The first thing they did was murder all of the members of the Tudor party, which are the communists. So was there foreign fingerprints on what happened in 65? Yes, absolutely. The United States, the UK, Australia, they worked they worked hard to to eliminate the Indonesian Communist Party, which was the largest political party in the country. Um, they 
and and they, this genocide is not just Indonesia's genocide; it is our genocide. This is not to say that the United States was some kind of puppet master, and the Indonesian army had no will. Suharto had no agency. The killers in Indonesia have no responsibility. Not at all. But the United States participated and would have done anything it could to have more effectively participated. We provided weapons. We provided lists of thousands of names of people for the army to go and exterminate. We uh, had we had diplomats who were checking off the names of people to see that they were killed. We provided propaganda to fan the flames of anti-communist uh, hatred and hysteria. So yes, this is absolutely our crime too. But uh, who do we hold responsible? I mean, Henry Kissinger certainly has his fingerprints on greenlighting Suharto's and his military's invasion of Timor. Well, here it's worth talking about about the current uh, presidential frontrunner in Indonesia because Prabowo, uh, the army's candidate, was the head of the Army uh, Strategic Reserve, then the head of the Indonesian Special Forces, the son-in-law of the dictator Suharto, who came to power through the genocide and orchestrated, really, the mass killing, and served in the Special Forces in East Timor, where he almost certainly participated in crimes against humanity. Now, that's an occupation that Kissinger is also partly responsible for, that probably took the lives of one third of the population through outright killing, but also starvation, systematic starvation um, of, of, the of the population. This is a, Prabowo was uh, almost certainly involved with not just atrocities, but real crimes against humanity in East Timor. And then in May, 1998, when Suharto was, when pro-democracy protests were spreading around Indonesia and Suharto was finally forced from power. He was, Prabowo was ordering the shooting of students in Indonesian universities. He disappeared upwards of 20 leading pro-democracy activists around, I think, a minority, only a minority of them ever returned. And those that did were tortured uh, while in prison. And the remaining dozen plus have just never returned. So this is a man with blood on his hands. Beyond that, he was orchestrating riots and massacres, really, in Chinatowns across Indonesia, where people were locked into shopping centers, locked into their shops and homes, and then burned to death. Uh, he sent mobs in to commit uh, ma mass rapes. It was just absolutely gruesome what Prabowo Subianto did in May 1998. And all of this has actually been acknowledged by the government, but there's not only no 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 justice for this, he now is the is the leading candidate for president. And if he gets more than 50% of the vote, because the vote's happening today in Indonesia, which is Wednesday, the 14th, they're a day ahead then he's the next uh, leader of Indonesia. And as you mentioned, uh, Josh, he was married to Sahada's daughter. They've subsequently divorced, of course, but he's a part of that family. And 
you started out by talking about corruption, and that's a key element, isn't it? It's not just the murderous, bloodthirsty nature of an army that turns its guns on its own people, but it's also a oligarchy, a plutocracy. Suharto, by estimates, stole $30 billion from the Indonesian people. Yes, and, and, and uh, Rabowo's brother is one of the wealthiest oligarchs in the country, uh, a billionaire many, many times over. So we are talking about a kleptocracy with Prabowo at the very pinnacle of it. And absolutely, there's a real possibility that tomorrow he becomes the next president of Indonesia. It would be a great tragedy and a great setback for the cause of democracy and the cause of human rights and human dignity and historical memory and justice. And the U.S. will have to do a little tap dance, right, as they did with the Prime Minister of India, who was blacklisted and wasn't allowed to come to the United States, Modi. But obviously they had, when he gets elected Prime Minister of India, all is forgiven. So given that Prabowo was banned from coming to the United States for about 20 years, will all be forgiven? Abs absolutely all will be forgiven. And um, it's just worth reflecting on that, that here's a man who was banned because his human rights violations were documented, known, and accepted to have occurred. It's, this is not contentious. This is not in doubt what Prabowo Spianto did. His deeds are, are, are more or less known and, and, and understood and so serious that he was not allowed into the United States of America. And now he will be welcomed surely with open arms. So just in closing then, Joshua, is there a chance that he won't make the 50% threshold? That the, op the opposition split, right? There are three candidates running. You know, because obviously Joko Widodo, the incumbent, has tipped the scales to help Raboa by putting his own son as his running mate. What it's are the chances? Yeah. yeah of, it's absolutely of... maddening because 10 years ago when, when Prabowo first ran for office, and then five years ago he when he ran against Prabowo, our great hope was that somehow Jokowi would prevail. He did. The fact that um, he then appointed Prabowo as, as his defense minister and has now engineered basically an exception to the Indonesian contra uh, constitution so that his son could be Prabowo's running mate. You see, you're, you're supposed to be over 40 to be a presidential or vice presidential candidate in Indonesia. He's, I think, 37. He, but he has had a... a he has had a court rule that he's somehow an exception to the rule because he formerly held office. Um, because of that, it feels like an official endorsement for, by the very popular president, Jokowi, of Prabowo's candidacy. And that definitely increases his chances and the likelihood that he reaches the 50% thre uh, 50 threshold outright on the first round of the election. If he does not, if he only gets 49, 48, 45, then the question is, will there be sufficient organizing and conviction on, uh, among the opposition to come together and in the second round and defeat Prabowo? And I simply do not 
dare make a prediction. I do not know. Well, Joshua Oppenheimer, I thank you very much for joining us here today. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. And I'm so glad you're, you're drawing attention to this alarming turn in Southeast Asia. And again, I've been speaking with Joshua Oppenheimer, who's an award-winning filmmaker based in Copenhagen, best known for his Oscar-nominated films, The Act of Killing and The Look of Silence, which profile perpetrators of the 1965 Indonesian genocide as they reenact their war crimes without remorse. His upcoming apocalyptic musical film, The End, will premiere later this year, and he joined us from Germany. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. Bye for now.